Oh, never mind. Hey, good morning. Hey, I'm a, I'm a school teacher mostly, and I'm used to um, class settings, interactive kind of things. So when I'm talking this morning, you just want to, you know, raise your hand. <laughs> if it's a bad question, though, that you get homework after. Um, the other disclaimer, um, because of being a school teacher, we usually, you know, get to teach lessons for like 180 days. So I was preparing for this and pretty much planned a whole year for you. <laughs> And then somebody mentioned that you can Google, you know, how many words equals how many minutes in a speech, and um, decided to let you out by this evening. So, <laughs> no, actually, we hopefully it's condensed to about 30 minutes, um, and Phil's going to start flashing things on the screen that <laughs> goes too long. So, um, anyway, I, I don't speak in, uh, in bigger groups very often, so... Um, because of that, I want your forgiveness, and, um, and also you're going to have to hold on to your hat, because I think I did overplan. So I, I think it's going to be a little on the intense side, and um, so if you like using your Bible, start doing finger exercises, because you're going to be flying. Um, if you like listening, that's good. If you like zoning out during the sermon, you might as well start now, because I'm going to leave you in the dust. All right. Uh, let, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord that, that he'd say whatever he'd like you to hear, and uh, regardless of my quirks and background and all that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us, for your, your overwhelming, pursuing love for us, and uh, I pray that you'd catch us this morning, that we would be, uh, that we'd slow down enough that that your overwhelming love would, would surround us and catch us and, and keep us as we enter this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just kind of looking back um, a little bit to last week's message, we're, we're not going to continue with Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew 12 and 13. Rob wants to do all the expository, so I, he said I could talk on anything. But again, school teacher, i got to tie it in. Um, Anyway, Rob spoke from Matthew chapter 12, and it was that passage where the religious rulers are, are harshly criticizing Jesus. In fact, it almost doesn't capture... They were, they were saying that his work was being done in Satan's power. That's really a bad thing to do. Don't do that. Um, Jesus' work being done in Satan's power, and uh, Jesus called that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a very serious, serious thing people that were religious actually completely opposing God and ascribing his work to the devil. Um, Rob went on from that point in the passage to challenge us to get really get on board with Christ because it's kind of it's dangerous to be religious and not on board with Christ. <laughs> he challenged us to get all in. Was that what he said, all in? Or did I write that down? Yeah, all in. Um, not to be, not to, be um, to kind of live a halfway life and uh, Jesus said that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand, and also that a family or a home divided itself can't stand. I'd say, you know, same thing's true in our lives. When we're, when we're divided people, uh, we don't stand well. We need the wholeness and integration of our souls that the Lord provides. So, um, you know, coming back to that thought, I, I uh, was really, I was convicted um, about how, how many moments of my week I'm, I'm not consciously all in. I'm just doing my thing. 
going to work or chasing the chickens or whatever it is. But I'm just, I'm just doing my thing, and it, it would be so much more, the life would be so much more uh, rich if I, was, if I was really fully engaged with God throughout more moments of my, my day, more moments of my week, more phases of my life. Um, so uh, that led to me to thinking about, you know, well, what's, what takes a Christian from kind of this, you know, sort of halfway thing into really being all in? And, and uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's largely the extent to which we're really powered by God's grace versus just powered by our own, um, our own desires sometimes, maybe our, our habits, um, but just kind of running on on um, our own systems under the, under the sun, the, the one in the solar system, as opposed to being really in the kingdom of heaven and running under the sun of life, the, you know, Jesus himself. So um, anyway, let's look today at this idea of a life that's really powered by grace. Do you know the idea of grace in the, in the New Testament comes from that word charis? We get charismatic from it, all these kind of power-sounding words. But then we, we often think of grace just as forgiveness, but it's really a word implying power and God's provision in a really whole sort of sense. It certainly includes forgiveness, but it's, it's, it's much beyond that, and our, our life can be powered by grace. It's the life God wants for us. It's the life he envisions for us. He, um, he actually predestines us to be made in the image of Jesus, which means a life increasingly like the way Jesus would live it is if he were living our lives in our place. What would Jesus be like if he was a school teacher or a mom or a computer programmer or a scientist? Whatever you're doing, what would it be like for Jesus to live out your life um, in your place? That, that'd be the grace-filled life. The cool thing about a grace-filled life, I think, is that because it it ends up looking more and more like Jesus and more and more like God. It's really joyful. I, I've known some people that lived really grace-filled life, and they, they, weren't, they weren't bummed out people. <laughs> They're, cause, well, and why is that? Well, because God is joyful. If you don't believe me, check out platypuses and all the you know, incredible astronomical phenomenon. God is so joyful and creative and overflowing in goodness. He loves beauty. He loves laughter. He, he makes super, super funny things. He makes silky chickens. He makes Polish chickens. Um, <laughs> God, God is joyful. You want a joyful life? Then you want the grace of God t- uh, powering you. It's a loving life because God is love. It's the life with, lived with God as its source. He created us, but it's also the life lived with God as the ongoing provider. And it's the life lived in ongoing relationship with all the parts, you know, all the persons of the Godhead, relationship with the Holy Father, with the precious Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit who walks alongside us. So, um, you guys on board with that, like wanting that? That's the kind of life I think, you know, I know God wants it for us. I guess a big question for us is, is do we, (laughs) is that the life we want? And then given our, our commitment to that kind of life, can we, how do we step into it? So that's kind of what we'll be looking at today. Um, you know, for humans, there's really only a couple of main, major ways to live out their lives. You've got the, the main kinds of people there are, people that live their life with God, 
and then people that life live their life without God. And um, in case there's anybody in the room this morning, or you're, you're actually living without him, and you need to take a start, I am going to address this briefly, but mostly we're going to try to challenge people. You're living your life with God, but I'm going to mostly try to challenge you to live closer. But life without God, pretty, pretty scary, actually. Um, there's a kind like the religious leaders that, we, that Jesus warned last week. They're just in open rejection. They're oppositional. They're maybe even blaming God and saying what God does is, is from Satan. Um, maybe they write books like The God Delusion. I mean, they're, they're kind of in God's face, and they're, they're screaming back at him. I don't know a lot of people like that. Uh, more commonly, the life lived without God that I see um, around me, maybe we could call the secular life. Uh, some people call it the carnal life, but it, it mostly ends up being defined by desire, um, and, but not desire for the ultimate, which is God. It's fine for our life to be de- de- defined by desire, but our, you know, we need to desire prime things like God himself, and then the lesser things come along. But um, the Bible gives us a whole book about this kind of life. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of passages about it, too. And uh, Solomon, who was in human terms, maybe the wisest guy that ever lived, he's blessed especially with wisdom, ends up writing about this, this, I'll call it secular life. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. So Solomon, who is this guy that God gave the most wisdom to, sought after, and he researched, he tried everything in an attempt to find lasting happiness, and then he concludes with this. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I didn't withhold my heart from any pleasure. My heart was pleased because of all of my labor, and this was the reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I exerted, and behold, all was super rewarding. No, Behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. You ever try to chase the wind down? All was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. That's S-U-N, sun. So Solomon chased after the best education. He chased after pleasure. He chased after wisdom. And he chased after work for fulfillment. And those are all good things. God, you know, God loves you to enjoy a good piece of cheese or like, pleasure is good. Work is good. Often we seek fulfillment in our work. That's good, but all these things by themselves aren't ultimately satisfying. They aren't, they aren't the grace-filled life. They're still a life centered on me and, and what I want. And, and sadly, it ends up being dust in the wind. You remember the Kansas song from the seven, all, all you old folks? Dust in the wind. Oh, we are, you know, really depressing. I put a super depressing picture up there. <laughs> I looked for the, I Googled the most depressing dust in the wind. No, I didn't. <laughs> that one just, yeah. Um, but let's look at life with God now. I, I just, I'd encourage you not to go for that, you know, the secular life or the blasphemous life. <laughs> Those aren't good options. Um, but let's especially now try to kind of sort out like a couple kinds of life with God, especially contrasting that, you know, that really close walk with him that's a grace-filled life 
and a life that maybe needs to be filled more with grace. Um, a lot of us who are in the faith have a life that's been changed by some experience of the new birth. In my case, I started having those experiences when I was really little, and I had a lot of them because I'd keep punching my brother afterward, and, and then we'd drive on Sharp Park, and I'd be scared to death. So I'd, I'd go to God again and ask him for forgive me, and I'd just keep coming back for another dose of forgiveness, and, and I'd punch my brother again, or whatever, whatever this you know, child, childish sin I would do. And I'd just keep coming back and keep coming back. I was kind of stuck in a little bit of a, of a rut, Whatever your theology, if you're a good Baptist, you say, oh, Dave, you were saved the whole time. Maybe you're a Wesleyan. No, you, you, you hadn't got the real thing yet. But in any case, I wasn't really trusting in Jesus, was I? I thought it was like about my behavior. I was an infant. I was a little, I was a little squirt. I think God probably looked down on me with a lot of affection. And every time I'd come back to him at the altar with another mess up, I think, I mean, I know every time I did that, he'd receive me. I would know that. You, you know that feeling in your heart where God, you know God's smiling on you? Um, so he walked with me through that. Um, but it, it would have been really, it really would be sad to stay in that stage, right, for my whole life. It'd be kind of sad to stay there. Um, a lot of us, so we get, have our initial experience with God, and we step in, and we commit, we're going to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? That's the song last week. But then we find ourselves looking at the end of our day and like, wow, I didn't really follow Jesus. I have decided, but I'm not really doing it. Does that make sense? And then it kind of just fits and starts sort of a life. And it's not really empowered by grace in an ongoing way. It's, it's, um, sometimes it's informed by bad ideas. There's a kind of a bad idea, I think. I, I'm going I'm to throw myself out there on the mercy of the court. I'm going to say it's a bad idea in the evangelical church that we emphasize so much the rapture and life after death that we just sort of think we got to muddle along and have messed up lives until God, you know, until we die and go to heaven. God will, you know, God will clean it up later. But then, I mean, in the meantime, what about letting our light shine before men so they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven? And what about all the missing out on the heavenly sort of life because we're muddling along. We're still punching our brother, whatever it is. I don't punch my brother anymore. I got over it, you know. Um, they live too far away. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that never mattered. <laughs> you just work your way inside with the uppercuts. Anyway, um, he was bigger, but I was more furious, which wasn't good either. I actually don't get furious too much anymore. It's just good. It's an improvement. But anyway, this muddling along until later, um, some ways we could think about this, there's some pictures in the Bible of this. Um, do you have a picture? Oh, yeah. There's the wandering sheep. So they're, they're in the fold and everything, but there's brambles on the edge, and they, they keep they're getting stuck all the time. I didn't put a picture up where the sheep gets out of the brambles and, like, half his wool is still in the bushes. That's kind of like the wrong kind of testimony, right? Um, so we're part, part of the flock, but kind of inclined to ignore the shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Well, this poor dude, maybe he's hoping to follow, but kind of got himself stuck. Um, I have a chicken named Licorice. It's the black silky, if you've seen her out in the yard here. Um, she's kind of like this. She's uh, seven months old. She's old enough to lay eggs. Uh, I gave her a fake egg. I, I read somewhere that 
a fake egg might inspire a chicken to grow up. And she likes to sit on the fake egg. It's kind of encouraging. Um, but she actually, she'll go in there and sit on the fake egg and not, actually not come out in the morning. She'll just sit on the fake egg. And um, at night, all the other chickens go to bed and she'll be like out sitting on a brick. And I have to like hit her with a broom. Uh, licorice, dumb, dumb. There's raccoons out. Um, so, you know, she's kind of like my version of the sheep caught in the brambles. But perhaps a better, uh, better metaphor for us this morning is to kind of think about more like, rather than thinking of a sheep, more thinking about the immaturity issue, like the dude with the passy up there. Um, I, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I coined this term or not. I couldn't think of where I found it if I found it, but I call it persistent Christian immaturity. Persistent pacifier Christianity. I don't, anyway, we call it whatever you want, but it's Unfortunately, it's like being stuck as either sort of an infant or a toddler, maybe a middle schooler. A lot of times when I look back on my performance in uh, group settings where somebody aggravated me, I, I, I noticed that I acted a whole lot like sixth graders. Um, really quickly um, taking things personally, really quickly um, kind of get you know the hair on the back of my neck a little up because somebody disagrees with me. That's pretty toddlerish, and I'm 55, but um, kind of time to move beyond that stuff, right? So now maybe maybe it's okay. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't beat myself up too much. It, it kind of is what it is. I just need to engage with God in the next thing, right? Maybe it's okay to be a junior higher in the kingdom. I'm not a you know past elementary school, but I I, I think the point I want to get across. So wherever you are today, you look back on this week, you're like, wow, I was kind of infantile. I lost my temper, I did, whatever. Just the, the deal is moving into Christian maturity just means taking care of that stuff more readily, more quickly, and not getting stuck in the pattern. A mature person, you know, I was watching NBA last night. These guys, these great shooters miss shots. They don't run down the court beating themselves up. Like, you know, imagine Clay Thompson thinking about that one he missed the whole rest of the game. He doesn't do that. He thinks about the next one he's going to make. So it's not like God doesn't want us to be like in this perpetual thing of shame and like, wow, I'm such a mess up. I'm such a junior higher. But he, he wants us to see the picture of maturity and move toward it. So where are you now? What's the next step? I think that's kind of the point. Um, there's some passages in the Bible that talk about infancy or about childishness, not the, maybe not the good kind of childishness. Um, Jesus said we should be like children in our faith. But uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. He's talking to the church here. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but people of the flesh as infants in Christ. Later he says, brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in regard to evil. You could be real innocent and infantile when it comes to bad stuff. But in your thinking, be mature. Peter writes, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. So that's a good kind of infancy. But it doesn't stop. That you may grow up into salvation. You see, you can always push in onward. Ephesians 4 says, so we should no longer be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children are easily misled, aren't they? And Hebrews says, 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. I think that's just the basic Jesus forgives you for your sins. Let's move on. Go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Let's get past that. That's, that's me when I'm punching my brother and getting saved and punching my brother. And get, that's, let's, get, let's get beyond that. Um, I think the writer of Hebrews knew some people like me. Um, now, here's something to remember about infancy and about childhood. It's good to be an infant, and I could go way off on my grandson, Wesley, right now. Um, it's really good to be an infant. But what the problem is, if, if you remain an infant past your infancy, um, it's not so wonderful. It's very difficult for that person, very difficult for their family, and it usually results in a massive effort, sometimes a medical effort or a psychological effort or something to help that person progress past their infancy. It becomes a tragedy for an infant to remain an infant. We were so excited to see Wesley eating solid food yesterday. I mean, well, big deal, right? But it's new to him. And yes, but he's getting to be six months old. If he's not, what if he couldn't digest it? That'd be a disaster. What if he's four and he, you know, doesn't use the toilet yet? It would be... It gets a little frustrating. Um, what if he's eight and he's not learning to talk? These are, so God doesn't want that kind of life for us. Again, it's like, let's, if, you, if you realize some infantile tendencies in yourself, it isn't time to like, you know, let's beat on ourselves, but what would it take to engage with God and move past whatever's holding you back? That's kind of the question. So let's talk more about the life of Actually, the healthy Christian life, we'll call it. And our text is Psalm 23. This is a life of, of seeking God, steadily following Him, and it results in maturity. And um, I asked Becky to do some scripture reading for us this morning, so are you queued up? She reads better than I do. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's probably the best poem ever written. But you're, you know a better one? You're a lit teacher, right? It's the best one? Okay. If you don't know that one, one way to engage the life of God is to, is to learn some of his words and uh, get them like, playing in your mind. You can go through your day with the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's pretty good background music. But let's talk a little bit about each part of this passage and think about this life of grace that God wants for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That speaks to all sufficiency of God. He's got more than we need. He has, he's, like, there's no way to talk about God's provision adequately uh, it's a life where we don't lack, we, where we lack nothing that we need. The New Testament says every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. He, um, God is a generous and all-powerful and all-loving God. Um, 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, also tells me that I'm a sheep. Good news or bad news? <laughs> not a super complimentary thing, but what if it's just true? And can I, can I go into the next board meeting remembering that? Maybe if I did, I'd be less likely to lose my temper. Um, do I realize that the Lord is the provider of all of my needs? He makes me lie down in green pastures. What do you think that's about? The grace-filled life is relaxing. I think that's actually true. Jesus was pretty relaxed, wasn't he? He slept in a storm in a boat. Man, that's relaxed. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So God's provision gives us abundance even, even in the desert. Now, Psalm 23 was written to people that were shepherding on rocky hillsides. If you see pictures of those places, it's like, what? There are no green pastures. They didn't have drip systems yet and hydroponics and all this stuff that, that's going on in that part of the world now. But God gives us abundance even, even on rocky hillsides and cliffs in our lives. He, he provides, he finds, the, he finds the grass growing in the rocks. He leads me beside still waters. Even in the desert, there are streams of water and there are oases, there's wells, and God knows where they are. Um, I try to find those on my own too often. But where is, where is rest and provision going to come from? Where's the living water going to come from? Um, God is the provider of that. Do you need living water? You won't find it on your own. You'll find it by following Jesus. He restores my soul. The soul is kind of a mysterious concept. I'm going to make a stab at explaining it, so forgive me. It's probably beyond me to do that, but using English words, I'm going to try. So let's go with this. God designed us to live in our bodies. So this is my little power pack. I get till I die. He designed our minds to be our interface with reality, where thinking and feeling and ideas happen, where remembering happens. Our hearts or wills are inside, and they drive direction and decision in our lives. And then our souls are probably the deepest part of our being, most comprehensive and mysterious parts. See, I explain it by not explaining it. Um, but it has something to do with integrating all the parts of our being, and, and it's a part that lasts. Um, our souls need to be whole. And I'm going to take a stab at saying what makes our souls not whole. I think it's sin. <laughs> In fact, I think sin is the stuff that fractures people's souls, and that's why it's sin. So God says don't do it because he doesn't want brokenness. He, he wants wholeness. So sin hurts the correct functioning of body and mind. You could probably think of a bunch of sins that do that. Sin hurts the correct functioning of the mind and the spirit. I want to do something up here, but my spirit's actually headed in the wrong direction, so I can't overrule my body. Sin at its worst actually leaves the body and the desires the body have completely in charge. We call that addiction. That's kind of the ultimate, deep, deep addiction is kind of the ultimate fracturing of the soul. It leaves the body totally in charge. 
and, and brokenness between the body, the mind, and the spirit. So he restores my soul. Why? Who's going to solve the problem that we have when we're, when, we're, when, we, when we're disintegrated, when we don't have integrity in our lives? Who, who solves that? Are there multiple solutions or one? I, it doesn't actually say in the text, he's the only one that restores our soul. But I think when we look at the rest of Scripture, we can, I think that's a fair thing to say. Like we absolutely need God to deal with this. And one way to engage with the grace of God is to engage in his ongoing restoration. When I didn't really believe in Jesus and I punched my brother again, I really did need to come back to the altar and pray. Now, again, it was kind of childish because I, I kept thinking that I need to get saved over and over again, but I didn't have any other words when I was, whatever, seven or eight years old. But what I know now is that I was coming back for soul restoration. I needed, I needed to be right with God and right with my brother. The next phrase, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. As a result of our following the Lord and being restored in our souls, we can go through our days, whether we're at home or at school or at work, actually walking in righteousness. Isn't that amazing? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Now, the grace-filled life says he leads me in the paths of righteousness. The, the religious person without grace says, I've got to be righteous. I've got to make this happen. But grace is this provision, this gifting from an all-generous God who says, I know where the path of righteousness is for you. The, my job is to check in. <laughs> and if I'm not if I'm not checking in, if I'm not aware of God, and my, my mind especially is elsewhere, um, I really need to become more preoccupied with God. Hebrews 12 says, let's forget those things that are behind and let's press forward to what is ahead. Lay aside the weight. Lay aside the sin that tangles you up and look to Jesus because he's the author and he's the finisher of your faith. So, this re-engagement with Jesus. Dwayne loves the book called The Calvary Road. Some of us read it last year. It's like about you come back to the cross, not because you need to be saved from your sins over and over again, but that's where Jesus is, right? That's where Jesus is. And if you need to participate in the death to self again, it's, it's at the cross. Um, so he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's interesting, like, we don't have to worry about, like, if we try to do good for God and we engage with God in that, don't worry about, like, am I earning my salvation? It, it'll be for his name's sake. Do, do good in God's name and enjoy it. Step in and walk with him in it and enjoy it. Um, if, you're, if you're doing good for him, you won't end up, you won't have a, end up with an issue with pride or taking credit. It'll be for his name's sake. Then it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I've had the privilege of seeing some friends and loved ones living such an amazing, everlasting sort of life that as they got really close to death, they were really close to God. Anybody else see that? It's, it's pretty incredible. Because death is like, it's kind of the ultimate, ultimate primal fear under the sun, right? It's the end of things. It's dust in the wind. It's decay. It's terror. But, man, 
older people, especially that have walked with God their whole lives and that are just like stoked about their own death, they're, they like honestly say, well, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I'm okay. This is going to be just fine. Um, 1 Corinthians says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory for our, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain for the Lord. So the toil is, is good. <laughs> the, the working heart is good, but it comes out of this provision of God's grace. Okay, the next phrase, for thou art with me. The whole basis for a victorious, everlasting life is God's closeness. If you forget everything else this morning, just go with that. The whole basis for a victorious life is the closeness of God. Some people refer to this as the with God life. It's going, it's going with God in my life. It's going with God in my life in particular moments like this one. <laughs> is God with me? And it's going with God through tomorrow, Monday, something's going to, what's going to happen in your life tomorrow? You go into work, what are you, just picture, picture God with you all through that. You're coming and you're going, you're rising, you're going, you're going to bed, your time with your family, your time with, with whatever, it's, it's life with him. So he, his presence is the whole basis for victory. The next phrase, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. <laughs> I always think, this always cracks me up because I, um, I always think of the rod as like a spanking thing. Um, and maybe it is a little bit of a correcting thing. I use a broom with licorice because she, she's got to go to bed or the raccoons are going to eat her. So I just, you know, a little tap with the bristles on her little poofy butt and she's, she's off and running. So the broom, it comforts licorice, even though she, she doesn't get, I mean, she doesn't really get the comfort yet. She's kind of annoyed at me and she squawks a little bit, but but God's got tools to bring us back. So, so we're pursuing this path of righteousness. We're, we're trying to live life with God. Don't worry about getting off the track. He'll, he'll tap you back. Or the, I guess the, 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 the staff had a hook on it, right? So if Jeremiah is out of line, God, he, he can push you or he can pull you. He's, 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 he's there in front and behind and on all sides. Um, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God protects us from even knowing most of the danger around us. Do you know that? <laughs> Can you imagine being omniscient? Bacteria would be a big problem for me. I'd be terrified all the time. I'm just looking at my hands. They'd be covered with enemies. But God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He protects us from even comprehending the dangers we constantly face. Imagine if we could see demons. That wouldn't be too good either. I heard someone say that if we could see all the microbes, the poisons, and the pollutants around us, we'd live in constant terror. And I imagine it's the same for those spiritual dangers. If we could see what, what's going on around us, but God provides and, he, and we have a feast before us, a feast of his provision, even though we're still here on this earth, and even though we're surrounded by terrors, both biological and spiritual and chemical and probably other categories. It's a big, scary world, but God is with us. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. 
God's provision is overflowing. His love pours out into our hearts until we have an overflow to share with others. Anybody ever stress out about 1 Corinthians 13? I can't live that. You should be patient. You should be kind. You should be... That's not what it says. It says love is patient. Love is kind. Where does the love come from? So you don't have to generate it. Pressure's off. The with God life will result in love. You don't have to do the loving life to be with God. We got to get this right or, or we get really messed up. And I, I struggle with this. I struggle with legalism, trying to push, put the cart in front of the horse. But God front loads all this work and all this love, all the grace, and we just, we tap in. But it's going to be good for our loved ones. <laughs> like, it's going to be actually loving. Like, if I'm living with God, it's really good for Becky. That makes sense? And I try to be really loving to Becky. Well, she could tell you about that. It, it, <laughs> it goes well sometimes. Surely, goodness and mercy, the three girls, no. Um, surely is an adverb here. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the life of powerful grace. So God's loving, leading in front of us, his rod and staff alongside us, or maybe a little behind us, if necessary. His anointing pouring out from over us. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's his giving gifts. And his goodness and mercy chasing us from behind. I love this. Goodness and mercy will follow me. I, it's not like we're totally surrounded by the goodness of God. As we close today, um, I'd like Becky to read for us from a place where um, I think Paul had been reading Psalm 23, and he's like, yeah, that's the best poem ever, but I'm going to try to write the next best one. And uh, this is Paul's anthem about the love of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, 
depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this life powered by grace is what we need, right? Anybody figure another solution out? <laughs> I, I really haven't. Um, and it's what our gracious God destined us for, what he wants for us, what he acts to make happen. And in fact, it's, it's why Jesus died for us. So think just as we close about the good grace of God, certainly for forgiveness for sin, but also to help us be in a place where we don't have to keep sinning. There, grace can be a preventative, not just a cure. <laughs> we don't have to skin our knees over and over and keep having bandages. And then think about it related to whatever you're most anxious about. If you're really anxious about something, and I've got some things right now, if we are really anxious about things, what, what does God's grace speak into that? Is God able to actually provide for all of my needs according to his riches and glory? And there's a lot of other applications, but I'm going to leave it at that. God's grace proactively can keep us from sin and failure and proactively can take us from anxiety and into faith. And let's embrace that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your good, good grace, your overwhelming love that pursues us and chases us down. And as I prayed at the beginning, I just, we'd ask, um, ask that you would catch us and enfold us in that love and that grace. And when we do stray, just knock us on the head, bring us back, hook us with the rod or staff, whatever it takes, Lord, and we, we want to be your people. We want to, to move into Christian maturity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.